This is Goldmine Editor Pat Prince, and welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast, a proud part of Pantheon Podcasts. This episode of the Goldmine Podcast will be talking about rock and roll documentaries, films, and video footage. Why? Because celebrated music historian Harvey Kubernick, author of the wonderful 2012 book Canyon of Dreams, The Magic and the Music of Laurel Canyon, has released the book Docs That Rock, Music That Matters, just this year. It's a 520-page paperback of interviews, documents, and artifacts with hundreds of photos, published by Otherworld Cottage Industries. The book focuses on the visual aspect of music, whether it's a movie like Easy Rider, a documentary like All Things Must Pass, which is a great documentary on Tower Records, done by Colin Hanks, the son of actor Tom Hanks, or vintage TV shows like American Bandstand and Shindig and others. Harvey interviewed a plethora of rock stars and insiders, like recording engineers, photographers, cinematographers, documentary movie makers, and even distributors involved in all the visual creative works centered around music that matter. Harvey Kubernick, as some of you might know, is a native of Los Angeles, and he has been tuned in to the music and entertainment industry for decades, almost since his birth. So, yes, he's got a lot of insider stories to tell, so you will want to listen to any time he's on the podcast. So let's get connected to Harvey. Uh, Harvey Kubernick, welcome to the Goldmine Podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you. Excited to be here, uh, Pat. I know we uh, we did one a few years ago, and um, you know the soft spot I have for uh, Goldmine Magazine and that demographic. Um, you know, many de- many decades ago, I, I wrote for the periodical, and that continued over. And you still do occasionally. Yeah. So. Oh no, no. Listen, um, you know, I it's interesting to write for a magazine and then months later or a few years later they're reviewing books you've done so uh <laughs> yeah. so i guess the duality is really benefiting me so i'm happy to be here and uh talk about this latest uh well, ex- <laughs> printed venture <laughs> well you, you have a wonderful book out called docs that rock and it's called with the subline music that matters and what i liked about it it fills a void about music documentaries which I think, and I'm sure you'll agree, have become even more popular now since the since it's the age of streaming and Netflix, and you have more availability to them, if you will. Um, they're almost more right in your face to choose uh, than they were before, where you had to kind of seek them out, correct? Correct. I did a book in 2006 that hinted at, and it did examine... Uh, music documentaries, but it also went into the world of music supervision and, you know, that arena. Um, This time, all along, I've been collecting data and doing research on music films, uh, DVDs, uh, videos, uh, you know, items going back to Betamax. And I decided... (laughs) I mean, this goes back to 
1975 in an mm. interview I did with Johnny Cash that was published in Melody Maker. Mm. Um, I asked him about his television show, The Johnny Cash Show. Mm-hmm. Very popular 1969 to 1971 ABC television series, um, which came out on DVD 10 years ago. And um, I just started realizing I have access, being a native Angelino and a child of Hollywood, that when film festivals were happening or the salutes and landmark events of music documentaries were going on to DVD or streaming platforms or just, shall we say, events where some of the documentarians who are 80 and 90 years old were coming to town. I better start really doing long-form interviews with these people. I'd met them over the decades and I had profiled them before, but I felt I'm going to develop a book where we weave in music documentaries that I've, I have history with, that I've collected, that people know about or should find out about, and then sprinkle in um, some music television shows because it was the music TV shows of the late 50s and the 60s, whether it be Dick Clark's American Bandstand or Shindig hosted by Jimmy O'Neill or Hullabaloo, the TV series, and especially Upbeat, which originated from Cleveland. These were the TV shows where I, you know, I wasn't even a teenager yet, saw rock and roll on TV. And now what we're seeing, and I know your audience knows this, we're starting to see these TV shows and these film clips mm-hmm. showing up on YouTube or Hula, but also they're being repurposed for long-form documentaries on people. And all yeah. of a sudden, these TV appearances have become very valuable. And I actually danced briefly on American Bandstand, and I actually did dance on Shebang. Um, not that I had some sort of agenda to, you know, show up on Broadway and be a dancer one day. I just went to schools where they gave tickets away, mm-hmm. and you could um, you could meet some of the acts or at least, you know, get a pack of gum or something showing up at the TV studio that everybody took the bus together, you know, to go. And it really informed um, my lifelong uh, love of music and cinema. Mm-hmm. But I think this book, um, it became very timely because uh, during this pandemic, we've all been sort of landlocked. Yes. And what what are we doing? We're reading more books. We're watching more TV. We're subscribing more than ever to Netflix. We're discovering Bob Marley has a YouTube channel like there's <laughs> an Ed Sullivan YouTube right. channel. Right. And all of a sudden... I've had this book in development for many years because I was had just finished a book with my brother on Jimi Hendrix and the uh, publication date got moved back to next year. Mm. And I realized this pandemic thing is really not going away for a while. Mm. So I said to Travis Pike, um, I have a book here. It needs to come out. Um, and 
he said the magic words, you can make it as long as you want. <laughs> Travis I, Pike think, is the I think, publisher. You know, I think people who yeah. know me and, and Goldmine uh, readers know this, especially when I'm given an online venue. Yes. I like doing five, ten, and 20,000 word stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm given the green light to do, you could have 500 pages <laughs> instead of 300. Right. And, and I just didn't recycle old, you know, interviews I've done. I made it a point to bring in a lot of new interviews that I did, you know, February, March, April, and May, and into June. Mm. And, um, and now we have a book, and uh, I mean, for somebody like you and your readership or viewers... Um, I don't think there's another book like it out there. Uh, all of a sudden, the, the timing of this is really connecting, But um, mm-hmm. and you're seeing some of the initial reviews. Right. And um, I, I really tapped the nerve here. Um, so, you know, I'm delighted, but, um, you know, and just thrilled to, when people are so receptive to it, because like Goldmine, I know that there are people out there looking at this book, they may discover the movie Rumble. Mm-hmm. They may actually go buy the DVD of the Dylan Pennybaker um, Don't Look Back. They might really go and find the deluxe edition of Standing in the, of Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Right. Um, so part of, uh, part of the mission mm. is to be of service. Right. But also, I just... When, when there, somebody was putting out a documentary, whether it be, you know, uh, Bang, the, the Burt Burns story, I mean, the list is endless. It's, it's sort of all there. Well, um, I, thought, I thought it was what was special about reading the book is that, like you said, you are part of the City of Angels. You were born there. You always lived there. You're always involved in the community, especially the, musical, the music community. And what I loved by reading the book is the fact that you were involved, even before you became a writer, you were going to American Bandstand and the crowd. Um, you were part of it. And I love reading about, and I think it's special for readers, to read behind the scenes. And I, the Dick Clark... Um, the Dick Clark section is special because he talks about one thing that I thought was interesting. And we've both spoken to, you know, uh, artists of that era, the British invasion artists. Yes. And a lot of them hated that period of music variety TV shows because they had to lip sync. And yes. there you have Dick Clark telling you that um, lip syncing was an art form <laughs> in itself. And, and, and the, and, and, I got such an interview out of Dick. Yeah. And again, I'm only basing this on, you know, 50 emails, a dozen early reviews and phone calls I'm getting. You know, this book's only been out a few weeks. I have completely reframed Dick Clark in the mind of people, which was not my goal object. Mm. And I realized I had met him a few times over the decades. I had been on bandstand for the brief season in 66. But you see these people, you go, you know, over the years I've been invited to the American Music Awards when I occasionally go to some award show. But I realize, okay, I'm going to go do 90 minutes at Dick Clark's office today. I have history with him. I really did watch Happening 68. 
I really want some tapings of where the action is. I really did see the Mamas and Papas and Bob Lynn on American Bandstand. And I actually have such a good memory. I actually, like, always mention the people I danced with or the guys I went to the show with, who I still talk to, by the way. All these people I'm still in contact with. And um, something happens something happens and happened when I'm able to go see a Dick Clark and say something off the top of my head. Hey, do you still speak to famous hooks who was a lead dancer on American bandstand? And he said, was just on the phone with him when you walked into the office. Mm. And that sets a tone of destiny. And what happens is that, okay, Dick Clark and I are going to talk about the Beatles today. We're going to talk about, (laughs) the early tours where there were horrific racial incidents that he witnessed or tried to save. And it sort of sets the vibe for the whole book that um, I'm so well prepared and I really do my research and I'll outwork anybody that Mm -hmm. when you are the messenger like I am and you're the translator of the interview, bring something different to the table that nobody else can get. Right. And here I am, and of all the pieces in this book, and I'm here to discuss whatever you want, I know what it's like for somebody like you who's entrenched in this music from 52 to contemporary sounds. You learned a lot about Dick Clark, and you kind of thought you knew a whole lot about him, but even something frivolous as being as lip syncing mm-hmm. or talking about you know other other aspects of his journey you finish that chapter and you go this is a different kind of music book yeah it fills in the gaps of history because you've heard dick clark talk a million times about what he thinks rock and roll was and what it stands for. But, you know, you don't hear him talk about the little things about uh, lip syncing or any of those little things that went on during that time that only someone like a goldmine reader would wonder about. You know what I mean? And uh, I think that's very special. And it, it the reader will get out of this that... Since you were part, a lot of a lot of TV variety shows, you know, were out there in L.A., and you were a part of it. And uh, you know, the fact that you were there makes it feel like they can live through your, you know, um, they can live through your experience. And uh, until, re- by the way, until recently, when I would occasionally mention my own regional history and articles I've done, yes. I remember getting 20 emails one day, and one was from, we'll just call him a former friend. <laughs> and, 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 and that's all I want. And it's a friendship I miss, but um, I was really done wrong. And he had read something and actually put it out on one of those thread things. And remember, mm. I'm not very active in social media, no real website, no Instagram. I don't do Facebook. I, I, I'm, too, I'm, you know, I'm too busy living and writing. Right. But the the email said, "You always got to drop yourself into your pieces." I, I, the vibe had a name dropper aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And but then it was followed by 
other people, including people sending me emails of people they know, because they would forward it to me instead of handing out my contact data, saying, can Harvey put more, more of himself in his next book? Yes. I didn't know he danced, or I just saw him on a film clip of I in L.A. It's on, it's on YouTube. And all of a sudden, everybody, and this is Travis Pike, this is people involved in my concentric circle of bringing the books to the, to the retail world, were saying, like Heather Harris is saying, you know, I really like that you knew Dick Clark. I yeah. really like that you met Casey Kasem. Yes. Uh, you're, you did six interviews with D.A. Pennybaker over 15 years. Uh, you, you need to let people know. But, but then Dan, Daniel Weissman, who's an author and a writer, said to me, you know what's really funny about your stuff? I always wanted to tell you to put more of your personal history because you actually are a Hollywood person. I realized... You know, I did go to some tapings of Shindig. Mm -hmm. um, we went. I have recall of of what the Four Tops were wearing, even though the show was broadcast in black and white. I remember those green iridescent suits. So I was encouraged to put a bit more of myself in this book, a handful of photos of me when appropriate, and um, and even having to... You know, uh, it, it just called for, because I'm not an academic, I'm not a professor who teaches at college, although I lecture at some schools. I just kind of thought, I have this history. I did meet Jimmy O'Neill, who hosted Shindig. I have these encounters, and from Johnny Cash on down, and, and interviewed the Funk Brothers when the Motown movie came out. Why not just put a lot of stuff on the pizza this time, like extra garlic and extra Harvey, as somebody said to me. And I said, you know what? Right now I'm in a space where I don't care what people say about my work or my writing because I'm really employed. And I know that the articles and the books are reaching global penetration. But the karmic aspect of it is I just kind of know some young kid or some girl or some grandfather is going to maybe buy the Johnny Cash show DVD or check out Allison Elwood's, you know, Laurel Canyon, A Place in Time documentary. They may rediscover the concert for Bangladesh, which celebrates a 50th anniversary a year from now. They might pick up their first ever Otis Redding DVD from Reeling in the Years production, I'm, I'm actually the guy who just might change their lives by picking up not a record or not streaming any recordings, having to physically purchase a DVD or at least watch it online somewhere or a, a streaming pay, paywall service. People have to get invested when you're dealing with the music documentary art form. It's one to three hours, not counting all the bonus stuff you and all the goldmine people relish. So these are, this is beyond suggesting a record in somebody's top ten. Mm -hmm. This is actually saying, hey kids, hey everybody, you might have missed these movies, or you saw them 
only in a movie theater, which you're forbidden to see again. Um, the, the, and, the, and the festivals of DVDs or rock docs and all that aren't happening due to the pandemic. So now there's a book that serves as sort of a tour guide. Mm. And, you know, that really wasn't the main goal. I had all these interviews with filmmakers. I made it a point to always talk to engineers, producers, and filmmakers. And mm-hmm. I often would get, you know, early advance links to see stuff, much like you. You do at Goldmine when you get the advance link, link mm-hmm. from a record label. And because there weren't too many people trying to... I mean, I'm on a second volume of this thing. This is 14 years later after the first uh, navigation. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the timing's really worked out, but also I just kind of know people's minds change after checking this book out they don't look at rock and roll movies ever the same again there's this thing is so front loaded with front loaded with data it'll take a year for this book to be digested once you start it right and you know basically people are will be turned on to new things like you said and they'll be able to live vicariously through your experience and that is unique and I also like the fact, and I think, I think you should also bring up the fact that you use sources not just from the music industry or musicians, but from academia too. Um, one such person you turn to is Dr. James Cushing. I believe he's academia, right? Maybe you could explain to the listeners who he is. You know, he was the phone call before you today. <laughs> okay. Dr. James Cushing who a month ago retired after 33 years as a professor of English and literature at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, Mm -hmm. Ph.D. But also, he's the guy I came up with the term rockademic. Nice. Because he just wasn't your usual professor on campus. Mm. For 35 years, he he was an active disc jockey, on places like KPFK FM and KEBF FM in Central Coast California. Mm. So there is the duality that he was a disc jockey through his college years, through his academic life, and the most one of the most hardcore record collectors ever. Um, he just cover he's a guy I go to Dylan concerts with, he's close with my brother, they they go off in jazz land sometime and leave. I mean, I'm not the guy who's going to go buy the 5LP Sun Ra box set for record store day. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But he has been, again, he watched the development of this book. We go. To, we went to see some of these movies together mm. in the theater. Mm. Then we would dialogue after. Yes. And then I would say... You know, I'm writing about this movie, Rumble. Uh, what did you think of it? Yes. Um, and and I could and then if, about Don't Look Back, I could ask him about Penny Baker. Mm-hmm. I could ask him about Murray Lerner in the festival movie. And we have seen these things in um, movie theaters or at film festivals. We eagerly awaited their arrival on video 30 years ago. We regobbled it when they came out on sort of DVD with some bonus tracks or director commentary. 
we still are discovering the outtakes and extended versions on the internet visa via you know youtube or sometimes these filmmakers and these musicians on their own websites post things and i i would say over the years i've got a lot of fan mail or people at you know bookstores coming up to me going I just bought my boyfriend the Monterey Pop Deluxe Edition DVD. <laughs> I read about it online. Like they don't they don't they didn't read about it in Goldmine or Mojo or the LA Times or places that I've written things for. I, you know, I never knew this this internet thing would completely um enhance my retail visibility. So that if you write about Monterey Pop or Concert for Bangladesh, you're up there on Google. It, it, so it's the article, like, you know, some of my gold mine items are out there. They're 10, 20, and 30 years old if they've been digitized. Mm. And all of a sudden, people are, they're not buying a band. They're not buying a brand. They're actually going the extra yard and checking out a movie or a DVD or a deluxe edition, you know, version of something they might have gotten 10 or 15 years ago, but there's an hour of bonus material on it, and the whole configuration has changed. And somehow this guide, I'll call this book maybe a guide, but it's really the most autobiographical book I've ever done because I've, I've dropped myself in the book every few chapters where I mention or cite my initial place where I saw a movie. Mm. But the other theory I have, and maybe you might verify this, this is just a theory that Dr. Cushing and I have discussed recently. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books and articles out, largely written by East Coast, New Jersey, or New York writers and authors that constantly <clears throat> parade their youth, the schools they went to, the colleges they went to. You don't really read too much, uh, and this is excluding rap music and the lyricist and the wordsmiths in rap music coming out here, Ice Cube, Ken, Kendrick Lamar, but you don't really read a whole lot of books about native people of Los Angeles and the schools and the concerts that they went to. So when I show up and talk about being on American Bandstand or going to a shindig taping or just my encounters running into people at the premiere of Don't Look Back in 1967 in Los Feliz. Something happens that it hits everybody really hard because I know you can say to me, I don't read too many people from L.A. talking about their hometown constantly like you've done. True. Very Would you true. agree with that concept? No, I do. I do. And that is, I think... What has happened when people, oh, wow, you actually interviewed the Whalers. You actually saw Bob Marley six times. You actually saw Johnny Cash 12 times and Salman Shindig in 65. The stuff's not dropped in, like, for some cool factor. Mm -hmm. 
it, I was encouraged by Dr. Cushing and so many people saying, you're the only one who was there. D don't make this a footnote and don't save it for interviews. Stick it in the text. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it comes across as name dropping. That was my tiny concern because I'm just saying, why didn't somebody said to me, why weren't there more photos of you? I said, I said, I didn't, I didn't do camera stuff back then. <laughs> I did try to go look for American Bandstand's footage, and it was quite a, the, the licensing price was pretty exorbitant. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking through the book now, trying to see how many photos of you there. there are Maybe only five or six. Yeah, but it's not a lot, but they were done when appropriate. Well, I can get and, a I can get a little bit of a extra out of this book. Um, I was looking for stuff, and maybe you could comment it because I didn't find information on it. So I I want to get your opinion on it. I know there used to be a festival every year in Texas where Robert Frank would show the film Cocksucker Blues. Yeah. Um, I wanted. To, did I miss something? Did you Did you talk about Cocksucker Blues in here? And I actually did. If and again, sometimes these things are tucked in yes. chapters. Um, I'm glad you asked this question, and I'm really proud of myself that I could say yes. <laughs> if what, and how did it arrive? Was really it? organically. I interviewed the director Paul Justman. 15 years ago for standing in the shadow of Motown. Ah, that's where it is. Okay. okay. Now, now follow this. And six months ago, maybe, I he had lectured at a friend of mine's documentary class at UCLA, a professor, David Leaf. And I said, do you have Paul Justman's email? I know he lives locally. I'm sure I could find him Justman Films or something. Um, because I'm I'm going to be doing a book, and I have an existing interview with him, but um, I wanted to get some quotes from him specifically about the filmmaker Robert Frank. And I mm -hmm. emailed Paul, and he gave me two to three long paragraphs of what he learned about filmmaking from Robert Frank because he had been involved in the editing of Cocksucker Blues. So the film is at least addressed and discussed, you know, in a full page, but it's tucked in the Motown chapter because he was one of the few people that studied under Robert Frank and then has become this director himself doing all kinds of Jay Giles videos and things like that. But I specifically asked him about the Stones and that movie and especially Rob working with Robert Frank. So he addresses that, yes. Okay, I'll have to look. I, somehow I overlooked that. And well, aren't, by the way, if you see a movie, don't you sometimes need to see it a second or third time or other things get tucked in the movie? Yeah, I, and, and, and you know. Kind, yeah, so that's kind of one of the little, I wouldn't want to say it was a literary device. I just was <laughs> smart enough to go, well, I want to talk about Robert Frank since I've, uh, <laughs> I saw five of the 1972 Rolling Stones, you know, concert dates. I want, and, and he was around for some of the filming and the editing of the movie. Yeah. Talk to me about Robert Frank. Um, so, 
that's that aspect. Yeah, in fact, I read the entire Rolling Stones chapters again to try to find it. <laughs> now you told me where it is. So, mm-hmm. um, also, do you remember speaking about TV variety shows? And not all of them in LA were um, on major networks. And there's this interesting history about this guy called David Snyderman. He was the asset king of the Rolling Stones. And supposedly he had a underground punk TV series in L.A. I don't know well, if you remember that. Well, now let that. me ask you, and I think it's the same guy. Yes. And I, I had mentioned his name with Peter Ivers in my book in 2006, Hollywood Shack Job. Mm. David Schneiderman, I think, might be David Jove. Yes. And yes. he and he and Peter Ivers had a show called New Wave Theater. Exactly. That's exactly and it. By the way, that's like Groucho Marx with the bird coming down. Did I just hit it for you? Yes. And and I did go to some tapings of New Wave Theater. I drove Joe Biafra one time to a taping <laughs> of New Wave Theater. I wish I was in the car I, for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I went to a couple of tapings because I met Peter Ivers two or three times when he was a record producer and doing an album for for Warner Brothers, and he was a very smart, Harvard-trained, brilliant man, and he had old-school roots, but he also gave a platform to, shall we say, new wave and punk rock music, and I was, and it was done locally. Yeah. So, um... I remember that's that's probably the same guy. I believe it's the same guy. It is guy. the same guy. He yeah, changed yeah. his name. And, and um, I found so out by were... watching some of the clips from the show, and I thought, this is pretty cool. This is the beginning of, you know, L.A. punk and L.A. new wave. But then I read, oh, my God, this is the same jerk that turned Keith Richards and Mick Jagger in in the drug bust. Yeah, it, that is, that's interesting. Yeah. I, had, I had co-produced and hosted my own television show starting in 1977, which preceded MTV and New Wave Theater. Um, it was short-lived. It was called 50-50. Mm. And I would have people like Danny Sugarman, Todd Rundgren, Michael Lloyd, and Murray the K on, but I'd also show clips of Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding. And I did have a couple of local bands, like the group 2020, perform on the show, although they were lip-syncing. So I had dipped my toe into this world, and we're talking 1977. Do you still have Um, clips of those? I have one of the shows. Luckily, I gave a copy to Michael Lloyd right after it was done, and I know Todd Rundgren has a copy. Um, Put it on YouTube, please. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. isn't that interesting? I might still have some of the same clothes. Wow. But, um, but I remember, I will say one thing. I made efforts knocking on doors of Hollywood for a year trying to peddle uh, this kind of show. And, right. And it, it, I wasn't successful. Mm. Um, well, fate intervened, and I was offered a job as West Coast director of A&R for MCA Records. But I couldn't interest suppliers and vendors and distributors and again this is a fledgling this is a world 77 78 and 79 mm. um and so um the pitches didn't work 
there was also some scorn and ridicule. People didn't like the race mixing that I was doing on my shows, which became sort of a underlying theme in this book about segregation and identity politics and race and gender. It keeps kind of showing up in this book. Maybe I didn't know what I was doing when I was asking Johnny Cash people about the Native Americans or talking to David Ruffin of The Temptations about um, what was it like on the road, and he would volunteer a racial incident he'd been through. Mm -hmm. So you start realizing, uh, and Mary Wilson of The Supremes talks about standing on the shoulders of other people that came before The Supremes in Motown. And so in this current climate we're living in, mm -hmm. um, there is some sociopolitical aspects that... Right. ...are in the text, which was not the game plan. And now when people are saying, you've got female directors and producers in this book, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, there's a woman named Linda Snyder that did the front cover of this book. Mm -hmm. I've never met or talked to her. Right. I, I'm, not, I'm not the Hollywood guy that does committee meetings and has to draft people and deal with inclusion writers and all that kind of stuff. That's not me. I'm just documenting my environment. Right. Um, and so all of a sudden this book is um, getting positioned as a little bit more than just a movie show, movies and TV series and, and rock and roll DVDs. And if you dig deep, you, you learn a lot of stuff from... Uh, quotes from Barry Gordy and a lot of people who um, I've always had a lot of the material though I did a lot of new interviews the first mm. five months of the year because mm. I couldn't go to concerts or clubs anymore okay right. we might as well just get this thing out it's the, it's just maybe there's a sense of faith here but yeah you, um, yeah, you were writing about socio-political topics at a time in the 70s and 80s when the music press kind of turned away from it, except for maybe Rolling Stone, than it was in the 60s or even now. Uh, so, yeah, you were you were definitely um, talking about stuff like that, and uh, you were multicultural, and you're, you're perfectly right. You were writing... You had a style that uh, others kind of stayed away from. Uh, you were open-minded. Open and, and let's face it, you know, although... Only goldmine readers and people like yourself, and I'll use this term old school, although I'm very encouraged by the new school children that are showing up who worship vinyl, mm. who go out of their way to collect mono, mm. who actually actively support, you know, record store day. Mm. Um, they're not ageist like some of my peers. Mm -hmm. They don't really care what's on the charts. Mm. They're not governed by being shills for the record or music industry. And they know, because I, I think when you look at the acknowledgments and credits in the book, or you read some of the chapters, you know, I come from Los Angeles including the first, like, eight years of my life in downtown Los Angeles in Crenshaw Village. Tr you know, true, I grew up in the surf, well, from 
50, late 57 to 63 with my parents. My brother, we lived in Culver City in West L.A., and then I was a teenager in West Hollywood, and here we are now. But you could not help but hear blues and R&B and what we now call soul music mm. blaring, at least when I became conscious maybe in 1956, on you couldn't you would hear larry williams you'd hear little richard 57 58 59 they were recording for la based record labels mm -hmm. so soul music r&b music has always been deeply embedded in my life and that showed up in the interviews i did so when i when i had enough money to buy a cassette player and actually buy some blank tapes I made sure to interview David Ruffin of The Temptations or Bobby Rogers of The Miracles and, and, and meet Curtis Mayfield and Jerry Butler. I mean, people that have been on the cover of Goldmine. I don't have to tell you of all yeah. people. But, but I'm glad you did I think, it. I think, I think, my, I think the R&B and the blues music world that I, I, I lived in, I never deserted it. So when it came time to write about Otis Redding, or the Stax Review, or Motown, I brought some stuff to the table that no one ever has done before. And, and I think, again, not to harp on this point, you constantly hear and read the New York writers and authors mm -hmm. and their personal history of growing up in Harlem and what public school they went to. And I'm not, I'm not degrading that at all, but... I don't think a lot of the Los Angeles writers and authors and people like myself, until recently, through my sheer force of will, got these books out that are now reaching global, you know, status, mm. that we're finding out, see what happens, you find out about Los Angeles through Harvey Kubernick. You start doing the math. I mean, why did Tom Petty write the intro to my 2014 book, Turn Up the Radio? Mm -hmm. Because Television City and the music shows out here on Shindig brought him and the Heartbreakers to Los Angeles and Hollywood from Florida. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm the guy that went to those TV shows, partially because they were... I don't know, one mile from where I lived with my parents. Right. And the world wasn't as hectic and crowded back then. There was one-tenth as many people. Right. You wanted to go to Shindig, you could show up even without a ticket one time, or they needed bodies to fill seats. Yes. It, it's, you know, there was no, people weren't, you know, there weren't scalpers in this world. You know, it was a, a different thing. It was a pre-FM radio, maybe, world. Mm. Um, it was a very... The, Los Angeles um, has been very good to me, and I think I've been very good to it, uh, weaving it in, the work I've done. And I, and I don't hide my bioregional affiliation. I'm quite proud of it, although somebody brought an article from years ago in a magazine which doubted myself growing up really? in downtown Los Angeles. Really? Well, yeah. So they had met me in junior high school. But, you know, you do have a life before age 13 and 14. Yes. 
and you know your first record impressions that start at five, six, seven, or eight, or the first record, or the first time you heard somebody on the radio, you remember that date, don't you? And your life is never the same after that. And I've learned to focus on the positive mm. because I'm now, I go to a market and, and somebody will either hear my voice from radio stuff or recognize me or maybe I'm wearing a Hendrix or Marley shirt. So like, oh, this guy, hey, that's, is that Harvey Kubernick wearing that Marley shirt? Because they weren't there to see or meet Bob Marley or interview the Whalers. Bob Marley's been off the planet, I think, since 1981. Yes. So there are people like me that were witnesses. Yes. And I'm still in this racket after 48 years. Mm. And some, so something seems to be happening where there's some sort of, I don't know if it's a reward, mm. but I'm very much into the acknowledgement, and very few things really bother me anymore because there's too much good stuff going on in our very sad and horrific world that I hope improves. Mm. But I was irked that it implied that I never grew up in Los downtown Los Angeles because I never, I mean, I never really have had the format to talk about it. Mm. So I, I am. Um, you got to brush off people like that. <laughs> I do, well, no, no. Anyways, I told this to people, and I said, well, do you want to see a picture of, of me in, at Coliseum Street Elementary School? And somebody <laughs> said, save it for the next book. <laughs> so um, I just kind of realized that myself and people from L.A. haven't had the big national forum to mm. write about the culture we came out of. Um, compared to other cities and all that. Um, so I think when I, I bring people into to the setups or the wrap-ups, it completely adds another dimension to the journey you've read. Mm. And I have to say the pictures and the artifacts in this book, um, you know, largely from Henry Diltz and his archivist librarian Gary Strobel, and my own collection, um, I really think they really underscore and reinforce the text that that's tossed at everybody. Well, let me put you on the spot now. And after yes, reading sir. the book, um, I want to ask you, in your opinion, which music documentary defined its subject best? Okay, I'll, okay, we'll throw a couple, a couple at you, couple at you. I think the Doors. The Doors products, Live at the Hollywood Bowl and Live at the Isle of Wight, mm -hmm. really define the Doors because they're largely concert footage only. I gotcha. So yeah. you're, you have a frozen moment of time of Jim Morrison and the Doors or the Doors collectively in 68, and then you have them in 1970. So I think that's a pretty stellar um documentary. Now, if we're really going into documentaries, I thought the Alan Slutsky and Paul Justman standing in the shadows of Motown mm. really brought me into the world of the Funk Brothers, and that might be, if we use the word best, or the best example, because the Funk Brothers, to even, even the common music journalist, 
we didn't really have a lot of names attached to the musicians on the Motown records until 1969 when the names started being like on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album. Mm -hmm. You didn't know the names of the players from 60 to 69 on the records you bought. Right. So I think that that movie, in my encounters interviewing the surviving Funk Brothers, I kind of thought that movie really told us about Motown and the players on the records because we are so aware of the Jackson 5 and Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye and the Temptations. But now we got to hear about the musicians. And I have to tell you, my, my if I have a favorite or my go-to, uh, my go-to movie, I, I have to say that, um, the, the D.A. Pennybaker's Monterey Pop, along with his Don't Look Back study of Bob Dylan, mm. um, really, really are, are still solid. I, I learn new things every time I watch them. Even though the association told us they were upset that uh, he didn't include a, the best part of their performance in there. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 the association did make, after 40 years, the uh, the bonus footage uh, version, yes, I, I know. believe. <laughs> um, that's another thing of... But often, I know one thing about concert movies or documentaries, or this goes to any movies made anywhere, yeah. they're often not shot in chronological order. Right, you know. right, right. But, but um, I have to give some real kudos to um, Colin Hanks and his All Things Must Pass yes. documentary on Tower Records. I, I have a feeling that chapter made an impression on you. Yes, it did. And it's I really, I really like we, him. We, we took. I don't. I think we both took Tower Records for granted. I mean, I sure. went to the opening of Tower Records in 1970 in West Hollywood because I had um, actually been in, on that location when it used to be the site of Madman Months, who used to put in uh, car radios and car speakers and everything into cars there. So that the location of the Sunset Boulevard Hollywood Tower Records was inhabiting a place of a, a sound electronics wizard that used to put in some of the first early car stereo systems. But I saw that movie. I went to the premiere. I did an interview with Colin Hanks and the producer of the film. And I was just gobsmacked. And believe me, they did have... I believe it started as a Kickstarter project, but they did have funding eventually and proper distribution. And uh, that movie made such an impression because I really got to meet Russ Solomon, the founder of Tower, and interview him. <laughs> but then I decided, why don't I get a hold of um, either some friends of mine or people I've never met, uh, whether it be somebody in Def Leppard or mm -hmm. musicians, that I either had seen shopping at Tower Records or knew mm -hmm. over the years that they got records at Tower Records or just in my encounters and friendship with Brian Wilson, I know how active he was at Tower Records, although in the 60s he was a, a big fan going to Wallach's Music City. He, you know, I'm from Hollywood. You see everybody at these places. And I think that Tower Records chapter where I'm able to ask Rodney Bingenheimer, what did you think of Tower Records? Or Joe Smith, 
before he died. Yeah. I got a quote from him because I, I had interviewed him uh, for a book I did with my brother on the Monterey International Pop Festival in 2012. And I just kind of asked these people, just kind of as an aside, because um, either Tower Records had just closed or I heard they were closing. Mm -hmm. I never thought it would end up in a book, but I had the data mm -hmm. on file. Mm -hmm. And I think when I write about this movie, compared to all the other interviews and articles you'll read on it, I, I just took it into a whole new world. Yeah, I, be, I felt nostalgic again. And even though you're right, at the time, I took Tower for granted because I enjoyed myself there shopping. But I usually went to the independent record store first to see if I could find something to contribute to them. And then went to Tower if, if you know, I needed to because uh, I thought of them as a conglomerate. But this movie kind of uh, made me feel better about feeling nostalgic, too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, and let me tell you something. There, with all this move against corporatism yes. and support indie music, and I understand that. I've always felt like, like that. <laughs> I, 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 listen, you're talking, but you know what? I like having a foot in each world. I do, too. I do, too. And, and now that I'm a little bit older now, why should I boycott Tower Records because they didn't have a large re rack section of new romantic music. Right. I, I mean, or they didn't really carry early Smith, you know, picture sleeve EP, so I guess they're not cool. Exactly. No, you, you, once you suspend all that restriction yes, and understand that a Dave Grohl, before he became in Nirvana or Foo Fighters, worked at Tower Records. I think that stuff's really important. And quite frankly, and, even though I liked before to buy the indie labels and I still support them, I love what the major labels are doing now with collectible box sets. And I love it as a fan, as a collector. It's like a dream. <laughs> oh, no, no. You, you have no idea that um, whether it be... I, I mean, right now, watching the major labels as they've all teamed up together or they've been yes. gobbled up together. I am delighted that they've been forced to go deep in their archives. Oh, I love it. And, I and, here's, love the, it. and here's another thing. I've been on this 50-year anniversary tip for a while, which started <laughs> when there were 25-year anniversary things to right. do. I think I wrote something for Goldmine on one of your Beatle cover story issues. 20 years after, you know, in 1984 or maybe 1994, 30-year anniversary of the Beatles coming to America, because um, I had I had seen the um, the, the closed circuit uh, concert footage. Well, I saw it live when the DC concert in '64 was aired and broadcast nationally. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, I was picking up on this 25 and 30-year anniversary <laughs> thing. 20 years ago, yes. and then I was watching All Things Must Pass, that came out as a 40th anniversary edition, Right. and then I'm sitting here writing articles and stuff on Elton John's 50th anniversary this week of his debut at the Troubadour, and I'm watching these 50-year cycle things happen, whether it be 
box sets by the band or Beatle re-releases or expanded deluxe editions of things. Or And so the labels have gone deep in their archives and we start seeing these things become available for retail. And so they finally join the brigade. And yes. to me that's been it good is. because... Because uh, I've just seen, um, and I don't think the 60s music is going away or these movies are going away no. because we're on a third or fourth generation right now. And we know how many new kids are checking out Bob Dylan for the first time. Yes. And now they can go rent or own the Don't Look Back title mm -hmm. or other items like that. And all of a sudden... We have a we have a world, and this is something Dr. Cushing instilled on me many years ago. Um, I said, you know, I'm trying to write about some of the new music, but the editors won't return my emails. <laughs> and I'm trying to write about rap music. I've interviewed Ice Cube three times. I've been in Ice T's house. I've met KRS One. And I have an interesting concept of talking to rappers then and now simply as wordsmiths <laughs> right. and writers without the beats and the music. So I tried to get a book going on that, and believe me, nobody wanted to see me at a record label or a publishing house writing about rap music, even though some of it's been published. Um, and, I, and I found myself, oh... That's your next um, book. I, I felt, well, it will happen. When, and by the way, I had a chapter on on Ice Cube in 2006 in my uh, Hollywood Shack Job book talking about lyrics and all that. I put him and Melvin Band Peoples and Mel Stewart, who did Watt Stacks in that book. You see, mm -hmm. I, I've been doing this, 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 this thing a very long time, and I don't think a lot of people have picked up on it, nor do I sit there and ask for right. the super coverage or the acknowledgement, but it's sort of all out there. But in, in concluding this little segment of this thing, I think um, something has something is happening where where I was said I said to Doctor Cushing, you know, there's I have a lot of data in the bullpen and a lot of information and I'm getting access to artifacts and ephemera and photos never seen. The only trepidation I have is I don't want it trafficked exclusively in nostalgia. But it seems to be one of the few outlets I have <clears throat> excuse me, as a writer that people are taking these articles or asking me to do these interviews. Mm -hmm. And he said because he has a sense of history when you're a professor in English and literature. He said, it's not nostalgia if you're delivering new information. Nice. And that, to me, which is why he's thanked in every one of my books, and I showcase <laughs> him in a half a dozen of the chapters, I can't tell you how liberating... That comment was not that I was like really concerned. I was still going to do these interviews and still want to talk to Rayman Zarek and all the people I've always talked to. But as far as thinking they could work in big format books, he said, it's not nostalgia if you're delivering new information. 
So what happens, and this is starting to really dwindle, people check out some of my books or they read the table of contents or they read the first reviews that are always very good coming out, and then they're stuck. They have a decision to make. They're really in an interesting position. It's like they're on the basketball court and they have a chance to grab the ball. Well, what's <laughs> Harvey Kubernick going to tell us about Shindig or the Tammy Show or the Elvis 68 special or Dick Clark or Upbeat Television or this movie Rumble or Burt Burns and Bang Records? We've already kind of seen these movies. We have a lot of the records. Is he rehashing um, these things? Is it kind of a guide to check these movies out every year, one of those kind of list kind of things? Mm. And so there's a little bit of hesitancy. Mm. But the hesitancy has disappeared right now. Because if you physically get this book and you hold it, it's one thing reading about this book on the Internet, but until you got the package from my publisher and you saw this TNT bomb in front of you, you realized, whoa, look at this. Now, and all of a sudden, once you read the prologue and check out everything, you realize it's not a rehash at all. It's a completely new look in examining this world by somebody who actually, I work on documentaries. I'm in some of these big authorized documentaries on Queen and Christine McVie and things like that. So I'm actually in this world as a consumer and also as a participant. Well, I got to ask you one more thing before sure. we depart. And okay, we asked you what... Uh, you thought documentary defined its subject best. How about a documentary that failed to show the largeness of its subject? I'm only with, and I'm a little biased here. I did write the liner notes for the 40th anniversary edition of the Elvis Presley 68 comeback special. Ah. And I love the DVD of that, of that, of that legendary you know, broadcast. I mean, it made me go see Elvis play live in 1970 after I saw it on television earlier. Now, and I realized a record label, Sony Music Entertainment, is involved in this in this reissue of this 68 comeback special that's been out on a live soundtrack album and it's been right. out on, on DVDs before. And believe me, Steve Bender, the director, is interviewed at length, and there are some outtake performances, um, you know, uh, you know, from the show. But I wish we got more. Well, first of all, Elvis Presley, with the rare press conference, didn't give interviews. Right. So we didn't really get to hear. I mean, Elvis gave one press conference before. The, in, the before the TV show was was broadcast, and he said something like, uh, "I better do this now before I get too old," you know, that kind of joking kind of thing. Right. But I, I really would have liked to. I mean, I made it a point on the liner notes and in this chapter to interview the music director and all kinds of people. But I wish some of these people were actually uh, filmed 
for inclusion on this um, DVD. And, uh, you know, I wanted to learn more about Elvis Presley. What was his mindset in 1968 when he's off the charts? And we don't really have Elvis talking too much about what he was doing back then. And um, when I when I do a project, I overfilm it, I over-record it, I interview 40 people and then cut it down to 26. Um, I don't think Colonel Parker and the Elvis estate then or now, they usually didn't give you too much of a glimpse into Elvis Presley off stage. There are moments in some of these documentaries that have been done, or since his death, we're learning a lot more about him in books and all these kind of tabloid-driven um, kind of um, profiles of him. Mm. But I, I don't know if that broadcaster, that documentary failed. It just was very limited because it was specific to a television show and the ancillary moments around it. But I just wish we had Elvis doing a voiceover commenting on this thing. I agree. That's true. He still uh, and Elvis is still means a lot to me. I I I saw him six or seven times and um you know, I, I write about him in in this book and I and I think that sixty eight comeback special um there are some moments in that show that are just riveting, including the performance of If I Can Dream and things like that. And I have to say one thing about that chapter that only the gold mine advocate would totally relish and realize what a coup it was for me. Mm. We can leave you with this, but this also sums up your demographic, why they would appreciate this story. It may not work in any other interview, but for people like you, it will. So I'm, I'm working on this Elvis Presley chapter. And I have the DVDs and the soundtrack album and all that. And I walk into a local record store in Sherman Oaks, California called Freak Beat. And um, the owner, Bob Say, says to me, what are you working on next? And I said, uh, I'm doing something on Elvis Presley. And, and he said, well, what are you doing on Elvis? And I go, I'm actually enlarging, um, I'm doing a really good chapter on the 68 comeback special. Part of it was um, in the recent HBO special, um, you know, Elvis Presley, you know, The Searcher. And I was reminded again just how good that TV special was. And I had interviewed Steve Bender, the director. I went to the chiropractor years ago and an actor named Lance Legault walked in, who I recognized, and I said, are you Lance Legault? And we talked about Elvis Presley because he was a friend of Elvis and a stand-in in a bunch of movies. Hmm. And he plays tambourine in the 68 comeback special on the uh, kind of the stripped-down portion. Wow. And I, and I interviewed him. I called up SAG to get his phone number, and he called me right back. But I said to the guy at Freakbeat, yeah, I'm doing something on the 68 comeback special. I think it's going to be a really good chapter. But I really, it's very hard to get access to Elvis photos because of restrictions and the estate. And record companies are very limited as far as visuals for books. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
I will say my dear friend Andrew Salt, who's familiar to Goldmine readers. He owns Sofa Entertainment. He owns the Ed Sullivan Show Library. Mm-hmm. And there's now an Ed Sullivan um, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And he gave me um, a black and white photo of Elvis from 56, I think, on the Ed Sullivan Show. So I had a picture of Elvis to start the chapter. But I had some concerns about I need some visuals of him. But I said, well, this chapter could probably work. It's Elvis Presley. You show a picture of him to start it, then we go into the 68 comeback special. And I told Bob, say, I'm doing this thing. And he said, you know what's kind of cool? I just uh, I just found and got an acetate of the If I Can Dream from Bender Howe Productions of Elvis Presley. Mm. And and he scanned the label copy for me, and it's in the chapter. And that visual is something that people are bringing up to me because guys like you in Goldmine, you kind of dig seeing label copies and first printings of stuff, even if there's a typo or something. Right. And I and so I I have a really rare Presley item, courtesy of this guy who happened to just obtained a copy of this thing. So the collector mentality lives, what can I tell you? <laughs> well, I want to thank you for writing this book. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And listeners, you should pick up Docs That Rock, Music That Matters by Harvey Kubernick is his new book, and it's published by Otherworld Cottage. And do you find that yourself, you're, you could get on this online, correct, besides going into... Yeah, oh, no, there's into, a big link at Amazon. It's all, it's all out there. And, um, um, you know, support Amazon, the book's there. Yeah. Um, and um, part of it is for people that are film students or going to school to be directors or actors or want to be in the film right. and video business and all that, um, the book was also partially designed, as you brought up earlier, for the academic world of um, professors and teachers, because I made it a point to ask a Murray Lerner about camera angles or D.A. Pennybaker about film stock. I mean, it's certainly not one of these hardcore academic texts tech, about um, how to make movies and all that, but I did bring in aspects of... Uh, how to shoot live rock and roll, mm-hmm. um, how how these people, like the Mazeless Brothers, who did Give Me Shelter, and I don't, you read that Give Me Shelter chapter, yes. I don't think you've ever seen Give Me Shelter chronicled that way. And, well, I, one thing I notice in there is that the tour manager, um, Thank you, uh-huh. Sam Cutler, um, mm-hmm. One of the Stones' bodyguards, I can't remember his name now. Tony Funches, yes. Said that the tour manager was unfairly blamed. And, yes. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you agree with that. Um, I so- totally agree. And, again, maybe this is fate and destiny. And I think one of the – and I, I would encourage Rolling Stones fans – if you if you love the movie Give Me Shelter, yes, um, I suggest you read the chapter. Not because you've memorized the movie a hundred times, 
mm-hmm. and I have quotes from Keith Richard and Ronnie Schneider of Avco. But the most important thing to me about that chapter, and I know that it resonates to the reader, I went to West LA College with a guy named Tony Funches. That's it. 69. That's the bodyguard, right? Yes. Right. Now, now I know when you read that chapter, you were stunned with the rec- the reflections that Tony gave me because right. you never really read them before. Well, that's why but it's went, best to I went to right to, to did, interview. Did that stuff blow your mind? To interview people behind the scenes, they'll they'll be they're not guarded. They don't want to give you scripted answers. No, but 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 also remember why the Tony thing is special for me. Not because he left the planet a couple of years. Because ago. you saw him in the movie for the first time with your friend in a the movie theater. <laughs> well, imagine Harvey Kubernick putting himself through college for almost two years at West LA College, working in the school library at I think a dollar seventy-five an hour. Yeah. And a guy named Tony Funches would come in, who was the student body president of this college. The first semester it opened. And he was a little older than all of us. He was there on the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. And he had been a Vietnam vet. And I'm sitting there at this college with a student deferment, making sure I wasn't going to (laughs) Vietnam. And then I, I knew him. I just knew him. I met him a dozen times at least, um, maybe had lunch with him a couple times. He was just Tony, student body president. We talk a little bit about music. But then he didn't show up the next year at college. I said, oh, some people make an impression, but then you never see them again. I then go to see this movie. Give me Give shelter. Me shelter. Right with my friend Robert Sherman, who I worked at the library with, who knew Tony Funches as well. Yeah. And we turned to each other and said, is that Tony Funches? <laughs> and, 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 and we kind of said, wow, no wonder he wasn't at college. Yeah. Okay, decades go by. Many, many, many years go by. And maybe ten, five years ago, I could have done this through Facebook, but I don't use that device because I <laughs> sort of like the way things come to me organically on occasion. I had thought of Tony Funches over the years, not daily or yearly, but he made an impression. I get a phone call from a couple of friends of mine, big Doors fans. I mean, one of them was actually living in the former residence of Jim and Pamela in Laurel Canyon. And they were Doors fans, and they they went to Colorado, and they tracked down Tony Funches, who had gone into security work, uh, working for Barry Fay, a concert promoter in Denver. He had continued in this world of um, of security, personal security. They, they tracked down Tony Funches to talk to him about the doors and in the conversation one of the guys rob hill or matt king said do you remember harvey kubernick who went to west l.a college and tony said give me his phone number immediately (laughs) he called me on the phone and matt and rob arranged for tony to come out to laurel canyon to rendezvous at Jim Morrison's former residence because Tony, after Give Me Shelter and the Rolling Stones, did 11 months as Jim Morrison's bodyguard, right? Yes. And he walked into that house 
I hadn't seen him since 1969. This is five years ago, maybe. And he's carrying a copy of my book on Laurel Canyon. And the first words out of his mouth, well, I mentioned it in the book, is... I can't, you know, he, he just was, it was such a great thing to embrace him and see him and spend six and seven hours talking to him and doing a formal interview. And like a movie script, he said, he said to everybody, Let, let's touch base tomorrow. John Densmore is coming by to pick me up right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, welcome to Hollywood. Well, what I would but, love to do is, yeah. you, you know how in Hollywood you always have these uh, uh, people on the side of the streets? I don't know if they have them anymore, but they used to sell tour guides. I would yeah, love Map to have... Map of the Stars homes. Map yeah. of the Stars. I would love to have some book, and I know you could provide it, of actual photographs and details of where all these musicians lived where you just said jim morrison lived where jim morrison used to there are more dive bars that he used to go to than anything or where dennis wilson lived when charlie manson's girls took over his apartment you know that even the sordid bits of history and i have to i have to say there's a little bit of that in um, the Allison Elwood documentary in Laurel Canyon that's currently yep. airing on yep. cable, yep. where you actually see the houses of Joni Mitchell and people like that. Yep. And and over the years, there's been um, residences, you know, sort of profiled. Yep. I know Robert Landau, a photographer, he was taking pictures of um, the billboards on Sunset Strip yes. starting in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, Henry so Diltz used to there, take. There are people doing this kind of chronology. Yes. Because there is a, see, as I pointed out to you, there is a hunger for West Coast audio art now. That's yes. why, I mean, in November, Chris Hillman is putting out his autobiography. We're starting to see more autobiographies coming out from West Coast you know, L.A.-based artists. Mm. Um, and so I'm part of that. Of course, I think I've done that all along with my first book or, or Turn Up the Radio or the book on Laurel Canyon or the book on 1967. And I know certainly doing the, the Neil Young book and the Leonard Cohen book, um, I brought people into the world of, right. of Neil Young. I mean, I, I think one thing, and this goes to my... I don't know. I don't know if it's ability, destiny, or chronology. But I might be one of the few people you'll ever speak to that actually saw the original Buffalo Springfield twice. Mm -hmm. That is becoming like, did you ever see the Beatles? Mm -hmm. Now, part of that is because Neil Young has very devoted, passionate fan base. Right. But I would think only four people are around who saw the Buffalo Springfield or actually worked and recorded at Gold Star Studio where they did their first album and a little bit of the, the second album. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I've been there the whole time. It was only this century that I was allowed, I'll use the word allowed, to write books on the subject. Um, I had tried for 10 years before. 
Mm -hmm. But the industry wasn't set up. It was largely in New York, and I didn't have a literary agent. So I carry the whole DIY ethic constantly. Um, but all of a sudden, there's a hunger and desire for the mamas and papas and the turtles and all their reissues and all these box sets and the association. And these are people that I've met, grew up with, saw play in their original groups. Um, and so I'm delighted when Rush Jagir, the association, has an autobiography out. I was so happy Howard Kalin uh, did his book with Jeff Tamarkin years ago of the Turtles. And this this did not exist 8, 10, and 20 years ago. Um, and part of it is, and Goldmine has never succumbed to this. You're a guy, and your readers, you certainly are going to check out um, Johnny Marr stuff, shall we say, but you never turned your back on the mamas and papas and the turtles. Mm -hmm. you, do, you do see the division mm. where once you go punk rock or new wave, you scoff at disco or glitter and the bell-bottom pants you used to wear or your parents used to wear. Um, I say you can do it all. And that's what Goldmine does, too. Yes. But you do know the rock and roll media, we'll call it, or popular culture media, or bloggers, or online reporters. Mm -hmm. um, you, do, you saw a while ago, it's changing now, uh, these people shunning and running away from, shall we call it, classic or heritage rock. Right. Now they realize all their, you know, Phoebe Bridges, singer-songwriter people, all love Elliot Smith or go back to the original Bob Dylan or John Phillips songwriters before that. So all of a sudden, we are all through reissues and re-releases and expanded editions, and liner notes just aren't on the back of an album anymore. They're 20 and 40 page booklets now. So the chronology, the documentation is getting out there and I'm the beneficiary because I decided let's take the game or let's take it into the frame game and kind of get into the TV shows and the DVDs and the movies that we saw and remind people the records and the recordings are great, but if you really want to know more about the people that you play, you know, audio check out what they look like on film or their journey and it goes beyond you know vh1 behind the music and things like that these are you know filmmakers often doing audio commentary on the supplemental tracks mm -hmm. so you really get the full widescreen experience and um so, you know, I'm just delighted to, uh, you know, tout this title, but especially to a venue like yourself and Goldmine People, because that is hardcore collector stuff, subscription audience. That Gimme Shelter thing, when you were reading that Tony Funches thing, weren't you marveling at his insights about Altamont? I had it in my notes. <laughs> there you, okay, then you see... I, I know when I hit the ball over the fence. Yes. But, I mean, I think for Stones people, yes. they read that chapter, they will see a different part of that movie again. And, uh, I, and to me, it was, like I said, as we discussed it in finishing up, 
that was somebody that I, 45 years later, got to reconnect with. So that's kind of the magic of rock and roll, too. Yeah. All right, thanks for today. Had a great time, man. Thank you, Harvey Kubernick. It's always a pleasure when you come on the podcast. Don't forget, Goldmine listeners, to go to goldminemag.com for extra content, exclusive content, and a percentage off on subscription price. You can also get the print issue at select Barnes & Noble stores, Books A Million stores, and record stores. The record store is listed in our record store directory, in fact. So until next time, this is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine. We'll catch you on the Goldmine Podcast. Thanks for listening.